Well, church, it is good to see you guys again today. And uh, if you're a first time or first time in a long time, uh, we're a couple months into a series uh, that we started on the life of Jesus Christ from eternity past all the way to eternity still future. And so uh, this morning, we're going to be jumping again one more time into Matthew chapter 5. We've been camping out in this chapter for quite a while now, uh, but we're going to be picking it up in verse 31 all the way through 37. We're going to be talking all about commitment and why it is that Jesus seems to care so much uh, that we are men and women of our word. Um, a little while ago, a few years back, I had a hilarious encounter with a guy over at North Park Mall. But it was just after Caleb was born, and I was in the habit of taking Fridays off of work. And I would take Caleb, and we'd go somewhere and do something. And he was a newborn infant at the time, so I'd put him in the stroller. And I'd always go over to North Park Mall to kind of cruise the mall a little bit. And then I'd, I'd camp out over at Breadwinners and sit on that patio and just, you know, it was just beautiful outside and stuff. And I'd sit on that thing, and I was in the habit of coming back to it week after week. And I got to know the, uh, the, the waiter that was there at that exact same time. He was, always, he was always waiting on me and stuff. And so we developed a little bit of a, a friendship over a number of weeks. And we started talking about things about the Lord. And he found out I was a singles pastor and things like that. And finally, one day, I, I invited him. I said, hey, I'd love to invite you to come out to this gathering that we're a part of. Uh, they can meet some great people, get some questions answered. We can continue this dialogue and, and all this kind of stuff. And I'll never forget his, his response. I thought it was absolutely hilarious. But he looked at me. He's like, oh, dude, that sounds incredible, man. He's like, I'm absolutely in. I'd love to do that. He's like, I'm definitely going to show up probably, like, probably, hopefully tomorrow I, I can maybe make that and stuff like that. It's going to be, I'm definitely in, most likely, in, and like, if I, if I can't make it tomorrow, I'm definitely probably going to try, like, the week after that, hopefully, maybe, you know, and like, probably. And I was like, I was like, what just happened in this conversation, right? I was like, what? That didn't even make any sense. What was that? I was like, I think I had like 12 definitely's and like a half a dozen probably maybes, hopefully's and things of that nature. And I was kind of laughing to myself going, yeah, yeah, that is, uh, uh, that is how we do things today. Needless to say, I never saw the guy. He never showed up at our gathering or anything like that, but I kind of laughed about it. And um, because this is kind of our trend today, is it not? Like, we're culturally this place where, like, we love to keep our options open. Like, I don't like to be, I don't want to be firmly committed. I don't want to be grounded in something. Like, I like to keep my options open. There's a professor named Mark Edmondson. He was a professor of English at UVA. He wrote about what he's seeing on campus and among a lot of his different students. And he just said this. He said, students today are possibility junkies. He said, for as much as they want to do with their life, they simply will not commit to anything. Socially, if it's 9, 5.30 p.m. on a Friday night, you ask them what they're doing that night, they're going to reply, Who knows? But uh, they're going to have a menu of parties and social opportunities for them to choose from. When it comes to academics, they're going to choose the blog version of oral literature because nobody wants to be committed to the, no one wants to commit the time to a work that they may not actually enjoy. When it comes to relationships, people want the hookup rather than the commitment, of course. We want to live together. We want to try it out first and figure out if this person makes me happy or if they flat out annoy me all the time. Uh, bottom line, we are a culture that really likes to keep our options open rather than making a commitment to something that we may end up regretting much later on. And I think we sense this, don't we? Like we know that this is a thing that's kind of been changing. Some of you have been around the block for a long time and you're kind of going, hey, uh, generations are changing, our values are changing and things like that. Pew Research came out with an article not long ago that said um, uh, detachment is the thing that is going to be marking this younger generation more than anything else. And they talked about a lot of the same things we've said, right? The marriage rate is plummeting. I think 1960, the marriage rate, I think this thing's a little bit reverb. Uh, 1960, the marriage rate was somewhere around 72%. Now it's around 51%. Like that's a massive decline, right? Um, Among young adults, 18 to 29, about 20% of us are married today. uh, Only about, whereas that number was 59% in 1960, 
like massive, massive differences right here. We're not wanting to commit and take the plunge and things of that nature. We're changing jobs at a higher rate than ever before, right? Baby boomers would keep their jobs on average for about seven years. Uh, That's a typo, by the way, my bad. Um, Baby boomers, about seven years. Generation X is about five years. Millennials are changing it about every two years right now, right? We don't want to commit to this profession and things of that nature. Uh, We identify as 70% spiritual, but definitely not religious, meaning I like to define how I view God and how I worship him and things like that, right? I'm a spiritual person. I'm just not a religious person. Committed church attendance. I talk about this one all the time because I'm a pastor. It's what we do, right? But like, you know this, like back in the day, uh, committed church members and attendance was somewhere around 48 to 52 weeks out of the year. Uh, Today, a committed church member is coming between 28 to 34 weeks out of the year, right? It's just what we do. And so the question that I want to look at today is like, why is that such a big deal? Why is that actually a problem in scripture? And why does Jesus uh, have issues with this? And, And then what commitments do you and I need to be committing to on a regular basis? Again, so if you have your Bibles, Matthew chapter 5, that's what we're going to be getting into today. Again, starting at verse 31. Again, if you're just joining us, he's continuing in the Sermon on the Mount. And so even though we spread this out over a long haul, this is one continuous sermon that Jesus is preaching uh, from the side of a mountaintop to a large crowd of people. He's uh, every step along the way, he's turning the world's value system completely upside down. He's called his followers, meaning you and me, to be the salt of the earth, the light of this world. And essentially everywhere he's going, he's just raising the bar of morality, and he's calling us to these holy lives. Uh, at the exact same time, he's also giving us this secure foundation from which you and I can actually pursue holiness. It's what he says when he says, I didn't come to abolish the law, I came to actually fulfill the law, meaning everything that the law requires of us, everything that God requires of us, perfect righteousness, perfect holiness, blood is a payment for sin, all of these high standards and these high callings, uh, Jesus came to fulfill these things for us. In other words, uh, you and I can actually pursue that high calling that he actually calls us too, because he came to fulfill those requirements uh, perfectly himself. So we're not pursuing holiness from we're not pursuing holiness from this place of fear or failure. We are pursuing holiness from this place of victory that's been wrapped up for us in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that's what we understand this side of that actual sermon right here in the Sermon on the Mount. And so this morning we're getting into the end of chapter 5 is wrapping up here, and he's going to be calling out pretty much six different areas that most religious people think we're pretty good in, right? And he's going to be kind of saying, okay, I know you thought you were fantastic at this and your righteousness was, was A-OK, uh, not so fast, my friend. Holiness is actually a little bit higher than that. Let me show you where you're missing it. And so that's what we're going to be kind of jumping into here in verse 31. So here's what he says. It's been said... Anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, I want to pause right there because in chapter 19, Jesus is going to get into a little bit more detail about what's actually taking place here at that, at that point in time and what he's really addressing here. So pick it up with me. Chapter 19, verse 3, the, the Pharisees, religious leaders, are coming to trap Jesus at this time. And, um, and here's, what, here's what they say. They ask him this question and they say, Jesus, is it lawful for a man uh, to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Right? That's the question. It's not like anything. Right? Does anything go right here? And uh, Jesus replies and he says, haven't you read that at the beginning the creator made them male and female? In the very beginning, God created us male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but they're actually one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. 
And so in other words, like this is the plan from the very beginning, right? Divorce was never part of the equation. And so the Pharisees and religious leaders, they ask him this question and they say, okay, Jesus, well, why then did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Which is a really good question. In other words, like if divorce was not part of the equation, like why did Moses allow it? And why did he say, okay, if you're going to get a divorce, you, all you, you got to present her this certificate and then send her away like that. And so it's a very good question. Jesus says this. He says, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the very beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. In other words, from the very, very beginning, the plan was for a husband and for a wife, for a man and for a woman to leave their families and to come together and for two people to become one flesh, united in this covenant of marriage before friends and family and before God, saying that I'm going to give myself fully to the other person. It is a man and a woman coming together and mutually benefiting the other person, giving fully of themselves to the other person, considering the other person as more important than themselves. It is husbands willing to love their wives as Christ the church when he fully gave himself for the church. It's wives giving fully of themselves to their own husbands as they already do to the Lord. Like that was the design from the very beginning. Divorce was never part of the plan. However, the reason that Moses permitted divorce in that point in time was because of sin, was because of the hardness of our hearts, which oftentimes uh, can lead to abuse or sexual immorality uh, in those kinds of cases. And so Moses permitted divorce and he required a certificate to prove, hey, you actually are divorced and we're not just kind of running around on each other and that kind of a thing. Now, the problem with what took place was this. Uh, The problem with that permission is that that permission had a way of kind of warping over time. And so it it began in a simple fashion over here, but it got warped warped more and more over time. And it created this permissive culture of divorce that was taking place, which essentially said a husband's allowed to divorce his wife for any reason whatsoever. That's what the Pharisees are referencing here in chapter 19. And so that's the culture that it created. A husband's allowed to divorce his wife for any reason whatsoever. The wife is not allowed to divorce her husband, right? It was only husbands that were allowed to divorce their wives. That's how jacked up of a culture this was back in that time. It was definitely not equal in any sense of the, in any stretch of the imagination. Only husbands could divorce their wives. Um, in fact, we actually have historical records of Jewish teachers teaching that um, if you were a husband, you were allowed to divorce your wife if she burned the toast. Right? You were allowed to divorce your wife if she no longer looked as youthful and beautiful and young as she once did. Right? Like that's, that's the culture that we're talking about here. So you can imagine some of the dysfunction that comes about from this kind of a thing. Right? That's what we're talking about with this permissive culture of divorce. Right? And so you can imagine some of the things that take place. Right? Not only were there a ton of miserable marriages that were, that were going on, but there was an unbelievable amount of oppression um, and suffering that existed for women at that time who were being kicked to the curb. They didn't have the same opportunities as men to get other jobs. They didn't have the exact same opportunities to provide for their children and things of that nature. They're being kicked to the curb for any old reason. And that's kind of the culture that's taking place. And so in the middle of that culture, Jesus breaks into the scene and he says, no more. No more. 
Like you completely abused my design. You're, you're so far from the design from the very beginning of this beautiful thing where a husband and wife are going to leave their families and they're going to come together in this mutually beneficial and this mutually edifying relationship where both people are going to be flourishing, where husbands are going to be loving in a sacrificial way, wives are going to be giving in this sacrificial way, two people are going to be coming together in this beautiful union. You are so far from that ideal, it's not even funny. So that's fantastic. I'm so glad that you were, we're passing out certificates here. Like, I'm so glad that, like, you're keeping to the letter of the law, and you're saying, hey, hey, I did my deed, I gave her a certificate, and now she's kicked to the curb. Like, way to go, you know, sarcasm, right? Like, I'm fan- that's fantastic, but here it is. Like, the commitment that you made to your spouse is so much bigger than just passing out certificates or not getting a divorce. The commitment that you made to your spouse is about learning to give of yourself fully until death do you part. The commitment that you made is about loving her as Christ would eventually come and love the church when he laid down his life for the church. And so I'm glad that you're doing this certificate thing, but you're completely missing the entire point of this whole deal. Commitment's about so much more than those superficial things at the very, very end. And so he picks it up in verse 33. Very, very similar thought here. Again, you've heard it said to to the people long ago, don't break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows that you've made. But I tell you, don't swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And don't swear by your head, for you can't even make one hair white or black. Right? Major problem today, right? Swearing by your head? Right? Anybody have a struggle with this? Um, right? It's not really what we do, is it? Right? This isn't, you're, you're kind of going, okay, what in the world? Like, back when we were young, we would pinky swear. You know what I'm talking about? I, I pinky swear. I know you don't believe me and stuff like that, but I pinky swear. I swear to you, I'm telling the truth. Or I swear on my mother's grave or my grandmother's grave or whoever you love, right? I swear in that person's grave that I'm telling you the truth, right? And so that's kind of what's, what's taking place here. One commentator explained it like this. He said this. He said, the rabbis had developed an elaborate stratification of oaths. They taught that swearing by God's name was binding, but swearing by heaven and earth was not binding. Swearing toward Jerusalem, that was binding. Swearing by Jerusalem, that was not binding. Right? Are you kidding me? Right? Like, uh, you remember playing the game of like, hey, as long as you got your fingers crossed, you can say pretty much anything that you want. You know what I mean? Like, I, I, you tell these elaborate lies, but then you get your fingers crossed behind your back. You're like, ha, ha, ha. I got them. Like, I can tell you anything I want to, and it doesn't matter because my fingers are crossed here. Like, literally, church, hear me. Grown men are doing that. Like grown religious leaders are doing that exact same thing. Oh, no, 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 no. I was swearing toward Jerusalem, not by Jerusalem. I don't have to be a man of one word. And so Jesus is coming in the scene, and he's kind of going, are you kidding me? Like, are you kidding me? Like, we're boasting in your own self-righteousness while this nonsense is taking place right here. You really think that you're fine? Like, uh, your righteousness must surpass that of the Pharisees uh, for obvious reasons here. You really think that that's going on and that that's okay? Like, church, check your heart. That's the whole message of this whole section. Check your heart because, like, holiness begins so much further back than what's taking place on the externals. Holiness begins in the heart. Check your heart. Like, what's going on inside where you actually believe that it's okay for you to not be a man or a woman of your word? And so he says in verse 37, let your yes be yes, and let your no be no. Anything beyond that comes from the evil one. In other words, church, like your word matters. Your word matters. It just does, right? Like your word matters. The commitments that you make, it matters if you actually keep them. Like don't make commitments that you don't intend to keep. Your word actually matters. 
And I think we get why, right? It's not a hard thing to figure out why it matters so much. Genesis chapter 12, uh, God's going to make a covenant with Abraham, and he's going to say, Abraham, I'm going to bless you so that you may be a blessing. Land, people, and uh, land, people, and what else? That's right. I'm blanking right now, so I really need you to fill in the, in, in the thing. That's his whole thing, right? It's, it's, it's this covenant here. I'll bless you to be a blessing, and through you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. Same thing with Moses here in Exodus 19. Even though the whole earth is mine, he says, you're going to be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. In other words, priests being the mediators between God and man. So the plan from the very beginning is that Israel would be this people, that God would be their king. He would be their king. They would be his people. They would be a holy nation set apart to him. They would be a holy nation, this kingdom of mediators through whom God would work in order to make himself known to a watching world. By the way, church, Paul is going to say the same thing of us, this side of the new covenant. It didn't just end with Israel, although there is distinction taking place. But in 2 Corinthians 5, he's going to say, we are ambassadors for the Lord Jesus Christ, right? Like, like, like it's God making his appeal through you and through me. In other words, the reason that this matters so much to Jesus is that you and I represent him. That's what he's saying. Like the reason that this matters so much is that you and I actually represent a faithful God who's been faithful to keep his promises from the very, very beginning. In other words, like nine times out of 10, church, like people are gonna see you, they're gonna meet you long before they ever meet Jesus. Like that's what an ambassador does. The ambassador is not the person in charge. They represent the person who's in charge. The ambassador is not actually the president. They're the one who goes and speaks on behalf of the president. So if an ambassador is not trustworthy, then neither is the president that they're called to represent. If an ambassador is kind of flaky, then so is the entire people and the nation that that ambassador is called to represent. If, a, and if a, an ambassador's word does not mean anything, then they are completely incapable of doing their job. Why? Because credibility is everything for the role of an ambassador. I'll never forget, like, when I was back there working at Sewell GMC way back in the day, this is one of the first things that they taught us uh, in training class. And you've probably seen this in, like, every kind of workplace you've ever been in. But day one, like, the thing that they, they hammered home over and over again was that every single interaction that you have will either build or destroy trust. Every single interaction that you have will either build or destroy trust. It doesn't matter if you're like picking up the phone and having a conversation, your, your appearance, your handshake, the way that you communicate with other people, the way that you serve them long afterwards, every interaction that you have will either build or destroy trust. And so they hammered home this principle for us uh, repeatedly. This is the thing that Sewell lives and dies by. They say always, 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 no matter who you're talking to, always under promise and over deliver. That's how it played out, under promise and over deliver. In other words, if you bring in your car for service and I think that it's gonna take you about two to three hours to get it done, cost about 500 bucks, I'm gonna say, hey, let's plan on three to four hours and let's plan on about 550, 600 bucks, somewhere right around there. And then I'm gonna work really, really, really hard to get it done in two, two and a half hours so that, because I wanna under promise and over deliver in all things. Why? Because credibility matters. Right? Like, like your credibility matters. If people are ever going to trust Sewell, then they have to actually trust me. In church, like we see this all over the place, right? Like you've had that contractor before, right? You ever do a house project and they're like coming in and be like, I can get all your floors done in, an entire, in just four days. And then it's like four months later and your whole house is ripped up and there's a hole in the ground and you've lost two children to what's going on there. And, like, and you're going to go like, what in the world is taking place? Like that person's not getting a recommendation from you, are they? Like, you're not going to Angie's List and recommending that person all the time to your friends. Like, church, like, we see this all the time. Like, I want you to imagine real quick, like, the most flaky person that you know. 
Like, actually picture them. Don't point at them right now, but like, I picture them. <laughs> the most flaky person that you know. And I want you to imagine for a second, like, you don't actually know Jesus Christ. And that flaky person is the one that comes and shares the gospel to you for the very first time. Like, how are you going to respond to that person? I'm going to be like, okay, so wait a second. You're telling me that there's a God in heaven who loves me. So much so that he sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to come and to live this sinless life for me. And he willingly went to the cross because my sin brought about death. And he took the punishment of my sin upon himself. And he suffered and he bled and died upon a cross. And three days later, he literally rose from the grave, proving that he is the son of God, proving that he has power over sin and death. And you're telling me that if I put my faith in him, that I can live with him now for all of eternity, now and for all of eternity? Like, here's the problem with this message. Like, the problem is I just don't trust you. Like, the problem is, like, you're the most flaky person I've ever known in my life. Like, you're not a person of your word. You're hot one day, you're cold the next day. Like, you told us we were all dressing up as Power Rangers for the Halloween costume contest at work, and, like, I was the only one that showed up like that. Like, you're not a person of your word, right? Like, like, like you're so excited about Jesus, and you have all this conviction about him, yet you're rarely even in the church, and you're rarely even serving whatsoever. Like, like I hear what you're saying, but the problem is, like, I just got a hard time trusting you. And what Jesus is saying is, like, that's not how it's supposed to be. What Jesus is saying is that when you and I open up our mouths about the gospel, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, it is the power of God for salvation that everyone believes. And what Jesus is saying is that when you and I open up our mouths and we share the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ with other people, they should look at you and say, you know what? I'm prone to believe you. Like, you're a trustworthy person. Like, you don't say things that you don't actually mean. You're a faithful person. Like I've seen this faithfulness in your life week in and week out for a long time, for years and years and years. I've seen that in you. I'm prone to believe you. I want to listen. Let's have this conversation about what you say about who Jesus is. Church, nine times out of ten, people are going to see you. They're going to meet you long before they ever, ever, ever meet Jesus. The other reason that I think that this is such a big deal to Jesus, and we're not going to see it in this exact text, but... Forgive me for a second for the way that I worded this, but I'm just going to say that greatness requires commitment, okay? Greatness requires commitment, and I didn't, I don't love the way that I worded that right there, um, because I'm not talking about your own personal greatness here. I'm talking about, I'm talking about great things require great commitments. I'm talking about great character requires a commitment. Great relationships require a great commitment. Great uh, relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ requires a great commitment. In other words, church, like commitment has this way of taking something that's good inside your life and helping it become great. Thank you, Jim Collins, right? Like we see this all over the Psalms, Psalm 89. Like the psalmist is going to sing about the faithfulness of God repeatedly throughout the scriptures. I'm going to sing of the Lord's great love forever. With my mouth, I'll make your faithfulness known through all generations. I'll declare your love stands firm forever, that you've established your faithfulness in heaven itself. In other words, like he's singing because of the faithfulness of God. It's, it's led him into worship. Psalm 100, give thanks to him and praise his name. For the Lord is good and his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues throughout all generations. Psalm 36, your love, O Lord, it reaches to the heavens, your faithfulness to the skies. In other words, church, like that's what faithfulness does. That's what a, 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 um, a commitment does. It is God's faithfulness towards David uh, that actually moves him from this generic understanding about who God actually is, and it turns him into a worshiper of the Lord his God. 
right? In other words, it takes something good, like the knowledge of God and who he may be, and it turns it into something great, like the worship of God. Church, it's the same thing professionally. We see this around us all the time. Like, you don't get the ring without the commitment. You don't get the championship without a commitment. One of my favorite, um, I got a picture here. This is Michael Jordan after his first championship. He was a huge MJ fan back in the day. This is just after his first championship. But uh, I remember watching that game, and literally after he won that first championship, like everyone stormed the courts. I mean, they were going nuts, and everybody's cheering and, and screaming and doing the whole thing. And then they panned over to MJ, and he was sprawled out on the court and just face down, and he's just weeping. And a little bit later on, they see him, they just, they see him go over to the trophy, and they just grabs this trophy, and he's just weeping, and he's just clutching this trophy tightly, tightly. I mean, just like you wouldn't believe. Church, like, you don't get the trophy without the commitment, Right? And granted, maybe like you and I, we're not MJ. Maybe some of us are more MJ than others, but yeah, right? Like maybe we're not exactly that, but you get this. We remember what it was like your first day at work. Some of you were teachers or lawyers or doctors or nurses or things like that. And like your first day at work was like you were in the clouds. Like you had no idea what you were doing. Teachers. My brother's a teacher and he's like, yeah, day one was horrific, right? I had no idea what I was doing. I was swimming constantly, but you were committed to your profession, and you committed to go there over and over and over again, and you finally got to this point where, hey, I wasn't just swimming here. I'm actually thriving, and kids are learning, and I'm flourishing in this calling that God's given to me, church. Like, that's what commitments do. Great commitments take good things, and they turn them into something great. Downton Abbey, right? Like you see this in Downton Abbey. There's not a man alive that loved Downton Abbey after the first 30 minutes, but you were firmly committed to your spouse. You hung in there and you realized how great of a show Downton Abbey was, right? Like that's what you did. You're like, this show is horrific. Now it's the greatest thing I've ever seen in my life, right? Like that's the power of commitment, church. And you got to understand this. Like he's not just about you having relationships. He's he's about you having healthy and thriving and God-honoring, God-glorifying relationships, And he's not just about you and I getting married or something like that. He's about you and I having these God-honoring, God-glorifying, self-sacrificing relationships that are going to be edifying to one another and glorifying under him. And it's not just about you and I finding religion, right? He could care less about you and I finding religion uh, because he wants us to be fully committed to the Lord Jesus Christ and that he would produce something inside of you that makes you want to sing. It's It's why he's going to say, Luke chapter 14, 26, if anyone comes to me and he does not hate his own father and his mother and his wife and his children and his brothers and his sisters and even his own life, then he cannot be my disciple. In other words, church, like, like when it comes to priorities and these commitments that you and I need to keep, like he's always number one. When it comes to, to thinking about, hey, what's the thing that I need to be giving most of my time, all of my heart, all of my efforts to, like he's always, always, always number one. And he's going to be saying the same thing, Matthew six thirty three, a little bit later on in the Sermon on the Mount. Seek first his kingdom. Seek first his righteousness, and then all these other things, they have a way of being added unto you. Church, like, that's how it works out. You pursue him first and foremost, and he has a way of providing these other things, which, which, which you ultimately really want deep down inside. I'll never forget, um, about, about 10 years ago, I took that trip out to Bangladesh, India, and I've told you guys a number of different aspects of that trip before, but I love the trip. But one of the things that really surprised me about going out to Bangladesh, uh, Bangalore. Did I say Bangladesh? We did a different trip to Bangladesh, Bangalore. Um, one of the things that surprised me was in this community, I was working with this seminary, this orphanage, and this Christian school in this area that was largely surrounded by uh, militant Hindus 
And it was a very dangerous area, but there was this pocket right here that was very healthy. People came from all around there to go study and learn and grow in these kinds of things. And, and I'm hanging out with all these students and these, these seminary grads and things of that nature. And, and I was surprised to see, like, how many marriages were there. Like, everyone was married there. Uh, the, the faculty was married. And they had these healthy, vibrant marriages, which I was kind of surprised about because I knew that everyone there, they, they didn't date like we date or anything like that. They have arranged marriages. And so I'm talking with them there, and I'm like, all right, got to ask about this. I was like, it seems like you guys are really happy, and it seems like you actually love each other, and these, these marriages are going to do really, really well. Like, how in the world is this taking place? And they laughed. I was like, explain it to little American Aaron here, because I don't understand what's taking place. And so they explained it to me like this, and they said, here's what our parents understand. They know that if I love the Lord Jesus Christ with all of my heart, all of my soul, all of my mind, and all of my strength, and I'm firmly committed to the spread of the gospel around the world. And I know how to actually love someone else. And they, all they need to do is find someone else who is also fully committed to the Lord Jesus Christ. All of their heart, all of their soul, all of their mind, all of their strength. Who is also committed to the spread of the gospel all around the world. Who also knows how to love people as Christ loved the church. They know that if we can just find two people like that, we will learn to fall in love and that God will take care of all the other things. We will grow together in this relationship and it'll be healthy. That's what you're seeing all around us. And I thought I was amazed by that answer. I was like, are you serious? Because they had these unusual marriages around them, flourishing, serving one another, giving fully of themselves to one another. It's not the stereotypical picture of abuse and things like that that we're gonna see on TV. By the way, Beth Moore said something very similar to us a long time ago. This is back when Kat and I were, uh, we were about to be engaged, and she grew up at First Baptist of Houston uh, going to Beth Moore's Sunday school class back in the day, right? There's, there's always that, right? She's her Sunday school teacher. And so um, went to college with her daughters and stuff, and so she comes back, and we're dating. She's having a conversation with Beth, and Beth asked two questions. She goes, she goes uh, Kat's telling her about our relationship and stuff, and Beth asked two questions. She goes, does he know the word of God, and does he submit to it? Does he know the word of God, and does he prayerfully submit to it every single day? And then she explained it, and she said, because if you can find someone who knows the word of God and also prayerfully submits to it every single day, you're going to find someone that's going to be constantly growing in their relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, and that's a person that you'll be able to grow through anything with. Church, like that's the power of being committed to the Lord Jesus Christ. First and foremost, he's going to say, seek first the kingdom of God and all these other things. In other words, church, like when you and I are seeking first him, when we are seeking first his kingdom, things like maturity takes place inside of us. He has a way of producing things like love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. And when we pursue him first and foremost, like our relationships have a way of getting stronger with one another. Our trials become manageable. Like the, the sorrows and the suffering that we're experiencing at any given time, I, they're able to, we're able to find hope in the middle of those things, and we're able to find purpose in the middle of those things. Like work finds its meaning, and, and religion has a way of turning into worship. But here it is, church. Like it doesn't just happen. It doesn't just happen when we're sitting on the couch and we're kind of just hoping things all work out. It requires a commitment, first and foremost, to the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, like once a week, 32 out of 52 weeks a week, 52 weeks a year, like that's not really going to cut it. A quiet times through Instagram and this motivational verse that we see on there on the way to work, like that's not the same thing as a quiet time and, and spending time with the Lord Jesus Christ and diving into the beauties of God's word and things of that nature and a few bucks on a plate when you've got tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands in the bank, like that's not exactly the same thing as generosity. 
And what he's going to be saying is seek first the kingdom of God. Seek first him and all these other things will also then be added unto you. So it's not that there's not other priorities. It's just that he comes number one. The second priority that the word of God calls us to be committed to is also going to be your family. And I think that's what he's talking about in, in Luke chapter 14, when he says, if anyone comes to me and doesn't hate his own father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, right? Like he's not literally saying that you need to hate your family, right? So none of you are justified in doing that, right? <laughs> okay. We look at that. We're like, hey, we're being biblical here. No, no, no. Like he's using hyperbole to say, to, to make up this comparison to say, uh, in relationship to the way that you love your family here, uh, you need to love your family. You need to love the Lord Jesus Christ in such a way that it is clear that they're number two. And so the second commandment that he calls us to is our family. And as I say that, like, I want to be very, very aware that some of us are going to be sitting there kind of going, okay, well, I'm not married, and I don't have kids, and I don't have this immediate nuclear family right around here, so what does that mean for me? And I want to acknowledge once again for the second week in a row what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, where he says it may actually be better for you to remain single than for you to marry because then there's a way that you can know the unexpected joy of being undivided in your loyalty and devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ. Like Christianity does this really, really weird thing where it's not just marriage that's amplified and lifted up. It's singleness too. And Paul, it's the reason Paul remains single. And he says, I wish that you would remain single like me. But he says that some of you single people and stuff, like you have this unexpected um, uh, privilege of knowing what it's like to be undivided in your love and loyalty to the Lord Jesus Christ. So church, hear me on this when when I say that no one's defined by their marital status. And I hope we understand that like no one in here is defined by their marital status. No one in here is defined by their ability to procreate. Right, Your highest joy and your highest calling is not your ability to provide a paycheck or to stay home with the kids. Your highest calling in life is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, and all of your strength. And that is a calling that could care less if you're black or you're white, if you're rich or you're poor, if you're male or you're female, if you're married or you're single. Nevertheless, if you have been given a spouse, and by God's grace you may have been given some children there too, then we have got to understand that great marriages and great relationships and great families require a great commitment. They just do. They don't, they don't just fall in the line. They don't just, you don't just happen into finding the right person that you never have to work with. You don't just, you don't just fall into saying, hey, you know what? I found that magic formula and, the, and there's, a sprinkle, there's this thing happening that Disney talks about and it just, it just happened to fall in the line. Like, like great families and great marriages, like these great relationships require a great commitment from two people coming together and saying no matter what else is taking place, you're gonna be my priority here. Behind the Lord Jesus Christ, but above everything else, I'm fully and 100% committed to you. Church, when we think about the commitment in the home, it is so much more than your ability to to pay a bill. It is so much more than your ability to stay home and just call it quits at that. A church, it is so much more than just not getting a divorce and making it 50 years in your life. It is a daily commitment to make your family a priority every single day. It's a commitment to, to come home after work instead of going out with the boys or the girls once again, over and over and over again when you've got kids and a spouse at home that are waiting for you. It's a commitment to come home and say, you know what, I'm gonna pour into my children. I'm gonna pour into my wife instead of going and playing more and more and more over and over and over and over again. It's a commitment to them every single day. It's a commitment to pursue purity and faithfulness online and in your mind and in your heart and not just physically around you, what we talked about last week. It's a commitment to be faithfully committed to your spouse when no one else is looking and when you're at your computer screen at night. 
and when you're interacting with your coworkers that are beautiful. It's a commitment to remain faithfully committed to them even in those times right there. It's a commitment to pass on the faith to your children and again, not just passively be at home with them. Church, can I just take a minute and just affirm, uh, there are some families here, I see exactly what you're doing and you're killing it. I mean, just, uh, just husbands and wives just, just so committed to take, being intentional with your kids at home. Like, like moms, like you're going nuts and like you're teaching your kids the word of God and like you're teaching them how to pray. And dad, you're coming home and you're being intentional with your kids and, and you're loving them and, and you're teaching them the things of God and you're having all these teachable moments and you're, like you know how to appropriate God's word into their life at a given time. Church, that's the depth of our commitment that we've made to our families. It's a commitment to keep dating and to keep the romance alive long after you said I do. Right? Like it's a, it's a commitment to, hey, I'm gonna love my wife and we're gonna keep pouring into this thing long after I said I do. Like the dating doesn't stop just because you've got the ring on the finger. I'll never forget this couple that was a, a youth group um, volunteers back in the day and they had that relationship that all the kids were kind of like, yeah, I want that one day. And I asked the guy about it one time. I was like, hey, what, 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 what would you tell me, someone who wants to get married at some point down the line? He just said, keep dating her. That's it, keep dating her. I was like, okay, well, what do you mean by that? And he's like, no, literally, take her on dates. And I was like, you mean go out, not just at home? That's not the same thing as a date. He's like, no, those are very different things. He's like, you don't stop dating once you say I do. You, 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 you make that a priority in your budget, and you say, you know what? Yeah, it's going to cost 50 bucks for a, a, a babysitter, but you know what? Like, that's actually a priority. And going out to dinner, like when we were in seminary, like we had no money and we were poor as dirt and, and then we would go to McDonald's, we would go to, I mean, do mindless things just to sit there and get away and to connect. And you're gonna do whatever it takes to continue to invest in that person that you've committed yourself to for the rest of your life. It's a commitment to keep talking and to keep connecting so you don't just become roommates that live together. Can I tell you how valuable this was? I had the mom that I would come home from school and even though I didn't want to talk, she was the mom that said, tell me about your day. Not just, did you have a good day? Yeah, okay, great. Tell me about it. Tell me about how'd you, how'd you think about that? How'd you feel about that? And I fought it literally pretty much every single day. Mom, I'm fine. It was good. I had a good day. Did you feel anything? I don't know what that means. Stop asking that, right? <laughs> but like every single day, like, how was it? Tell me all about it. And then dad did it too. And I'd come home and they, they would just talk and we'd just, like, like dinner time was a priority and then we would have to go and sit there no matter what else was happening. Like dinner time, you came together and like we had to talk. Like there's no cell phones at that time or anything like that. We had to talk. How do you think about this? And then like mom and dad, they did this thing called uh, like devotion times at dinner. And they'd bring out the Bible and say, hey, Aaron, I want you to read this verse. And I'd read it. What do you think that means? And I'm like, mom, I'm seven. I don't know. I don't know what that means. Stop asking me that. And literally I fought it for years. And I could not be more grateful for their commitment to pass on the faith to their children. Remember having that conversation with dad one time, and I said, Dad, we had to interview him for work week or something like that. Dad, what are your lifelong goals? Thinking he's going to be talking to me about his profession. And he's like, what are my goals? He's like, my goal is to have a family that loves and serves the Lord Jesus Christ with everything they've got. That's it. And I was like, no, 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 I'm talking about professionally. He's like, Aaron, that's, that's my priority. You need to know that. Like as a seventh grader, like you know how valuable that is to see mom and dad coming in, being fully committed to the kids and to the home and, and to one another. You know what a joy it is to be able to see mom and dad go out on dates 
And for them to say, hey, you're, you're staying home alone tonight. You're getting a babysitter. Like, I was never bitter about the babysitter because there was something beautiful about saying mom and dad, like, go, like dating. And even though it was gross in the kitchen from time to time, like, you know what I'm saying? Like, uh, you, you get over that and you're kind of like, hey, I love the security that that provides. And I love that dad's showing me how to love a wife. And I love that I'm not going to have to figure this out on my own, like, one day in the future when no one else is showing this kind of thing. Like, we have no idea that the... The privilege we've been given in the home to be able to show and teach children the beauties of God's word and how to love other people and how to serve your neighbors and how to, how to work together and to build one another up so that your wife is flourishing, so that your husband is flourishing. It's an unbelievable privilege that we have there in the home. It's a commitment to do the hard work of reconciliation. Man, we talked about that two weeks ago, and I'm not going to rehash that. Children's ministry will kill me. It's a commitment to keep growing every single day, not just individually, but collectively together so you don't just get stuck in the mud. Church, that's it. Great families, great marriages, they require a great commitment. The third thing we're called to prioritize is work, which is also your ministry, Colossians 3.23. Whatever you do, work at it with all of your heart as you're working for the Lord, not for human masters. Have you ever thought about your work like that? Right, what, would, what, would, what would happen if you got up one morning on Monday morning and you thought about your nine to five, no matter how mind-numbingly painful it may actually be, and you thought about it as an act of worship to the Lord and you're saying, you know what, for whatever reason, I'm doing this job, but God, I'm doing it for you. Or do you think that the relationships that you had at work would take on different significance? Like what if you thought about your coworkers like, I'm here to love them. Like I'm not just here to exist with them. Even the difficult ones, I'm here to serve them. I want to listen to them. When their marriage is on the rocks, I want to listen to them. I want to care about them. I want to pray for them. I want to cry with them. I want to go with them. I want to have them over for dinner. I want to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with them that they may come alive like the gospel's produced inside of me. Now, can you imagine if your work took on meaning? Last and the final commitment we're called to prioritize is the body of Christ, meaning the church. Paul's going to say it clear. You are the body of Christ. Each of you, essential members of one body. Some of you are hands and some of you are feet. Some of you are fingers and some of you are the brain and some of you are the heart. But here it is, church. Like the church is not just a building or a place that you go to. It's not just that. It's a gathering of people who have been covered in the blood of the Lamb of Jesus Christ. It's a gathering of people that you already belong to if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. So here it is, like, church, the, the, the question for a believer is never one of if I should be committed to a local church body. Like, this is never the question that's on the table. The question is never if I should be committed to a local church body. The reality is you already are the church. You are the church. You are the church that all the articles are ripping on every single day. You are the church that you're complaining about on social media. You are the church. So the question is never what, if I should be committed to a local church body. The only question is which local church body should I be committed to worship, grow, serve, and go with? Because the reality is, church, like, for a body to work, all the different members have to come together, and they got to be functioning as one. I saw some beautiful pictures of that this past week. A lady comes by the church, and she's bringing this big, giant box of food and clothes and things like that. And she didn't go to the church. She lives really far away. And Lindsay Lewis, our receptionist, was talking with her and asking her about, What's this, why are you coming here to bring all this stuff? And she explained, I used to live in those apartments behind your church. And for over a year, like, your food pantry sustained my family. And I would come over with my kids, and your volunteers would pray with me every single month. 
And they would give me food, and they would give me clothes, and they gave me a jacket, and they prayed with me, and they encouraged me, and they were there every single time. And by God's grace, he's brought healing in my life. I've been able to move out. My family's on their own feet. We've moved across town, but I want to come back and give into the church that so generously gave to me. Church, you know who that was? It's Trisha Mills. It's local people in our church body. It's not me. It's not Brian Radabaugh. It's not the elders. It's not the people who are paid to do this. It is people in our local church body coming together as one local church body for the good of the whole and for the glory of his name. This past week at Community Giveaway, we don't do these things just to have a party. John Sparks was sitting out in the front. He was out at the receptionist tent, and everybody's coming in. They're greeting everybody, and this group of little kids, they run up there, and they're like, excuse me, sir, can, can we go to this party too? And he's like, well, of course, everybody's invited. And they're like, well, how much is it? And he goes, it's free. And the kid lights up, and he's like, this whole thing's free? We don't have to pay anything? He's like, yeah, the whole thing's free. And John goes, where are, your, where are your parents? Are they here with you? And the kid looks down and, and he looks at John and he's just like, no, they were, they were afraid to come. And John was like, why would they be afraid to come? And they go, well, we live in the apartments behind the church and they're afraid that the people at the church wouldn't like them, that they'd be discriminated against. And John looked at those kids and his heart just broke. And he goes, I want you to come with me. I want you to walk me to your home and take me to your parents. 72-year-old John Sparks, white hair. He told me I could say that. <laughs> Walked with these children over to their place to go find their parents. And John sat with those parents. And he said, I'm so sorry that you feel like we wouldn't receive you because you're always welcome at our church. You're always welcome to come in here. We would love for you to come join us. Come join your kids. Go have a good time at our party. And they lit up, and he helped them get ready, and they got out of their car, and they came over to the church, and John walked them through the party, and he's introducing them to different people here, and he is with them hand in hand, making sure that they're connecting with different people. Church, that's a commitment. It's a commitment. And great churches require great commitments from a great number of people. Can you imagine, honestly, can you just imagine like for a second like what, what it would be like if we woke up on a Sunday morning and we weren't thinking about, hey, what am I going to get this day? But we actually woke up and we're considering, Lord, like how may I give to your body today? Can you imagine like what would happen in the local church body? The articles that would be written about Dallas Bible and about so many other places around here. If the mindset shifted from consumer to contributor, from, from hey, what am I going to get from this thing to hey, well, God, what have you given me that I can share with the rest of your body? All for the glory of your name and for the edification of this local body. Can you imagine what that kind of a church body would be like? And can you imagine if Don and Zane never had volunteer needs over there? And no matter what you do for a living, and no matter how overqualified you are for some of these service things that we do around here, you just jumped in and you said, you know what, everything that we're doing here is valuable, it's for the edification of the body and for the glory of God's name. Mike Huckabee, you know what he does? Besides running for president and office and things like that, he drives the golf cart for his church to help senior citizens get from their car to the front door. Presidential candidate driving a golf cart because nothing's beyond him because he understands that what we're doing here is we are loving a community. We are building a body. We are a part of this body. And for a body to flourish, it requires every single member to come together in unity, working together. Church, great 
Churches require great commitments from a great number of people. That's why Jesus is going to go off and he's just going to say, stop. Stop. The games stop the senseless divorce. Stop being flaky. Are you all in or not? Are you all in or not? Do you, do you mean it when you say yes? Let your yes be yes and let your no be no. Now, 